Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, July 20th, 2016, the new PM in the UK, failed coup in Turkey edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of sunny Birmingham. Joined as usual by my two co-hosts, Kristalia Kinthu, a Birmingham Research Fellow. How are you doing, Kristalia? I'm doing very well, thank you, Adam. How are you? I'm not so bad. Are you doing well? Scott Lucas, Professor of International Politics and Editor of News and Commentary site EA Worldview and also co-host. Well, so far, there hasn't been a coup today, and <laughs> Scotland hasn't quite defected from the disunited kingdom. So, yeah, I'd say it's a plus for today. Holding what we have, that's, uh, that, that's good enough in current times. Our two topics this week. First, as senior figures in the Conservative Party fall like nine pins after the Brexit vote, Theresa May emerges as the new Conservative Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. How will she govern? How long will she last? And can a Labour Party torn apart by infighting hope to challenge her for power? Second, plotters in the Turkish military try and fail to mount a coup against the country's Islamist president, will any remnant of democracy in Turkey survive the government backlash? To say it's been a crazy few weeks in British politics would be something of an understatement. Since the referendum vote to leave the European Union on June 23rd, the Prime Minister David Cameron has resigned. The leader of the Leave campaign, Boris Johnson, who was considered most likely to succeed him, was knifed in the back by his ally Michael Gove and withdrew from contention. Several other contenders then fell by the wayside before the Conservative Party leadership process was cut short by the withdrawal of last alternative standing Andrea Leadsom, leaving former Home Secretary and comparative safe pair of hands Theresa May as Britain's new Prime Minister. She then held a cabinet reshuffle that witnessed the brusque firing of Chancellor George Osborne, the aforementioned assassin Gove, and the phoenix-like rebirth of Boris as Foreign Secretary. Meanwhile, in the opposition Labour Party, leader Jeremy Corbyn lost a no-confidence motion among his parliamentary colleagues by 172 to 40 and now faces a formal challenge for the leadership. But his insistence on staying come what may, combined with his popularity in the party's leftist membership, may see him return to manage a party in Parliament that wants no more to do with him, it seems. Meanwhile, his poll ratings are among the worst of any opposition leader. In fact, they are the worst of any opposition leader in recorded history. We might mention as an aside in these interesting times that combined with the resignations of the leaders of the Liberal Democrats, UK Independence Party and the Greens, this means every non-regional British party in Parliament has lost its leader since the general election barely a year ago. Here to help us navigate some of these weeds is a special guest for the segment, Mark Goodwin, who's a lecturer in British politics here at Birmingham. How are you doing, Mark? I'm doing very well, thanks, Elamir. Yeah, plenty to talk about. Yeah, uh, interesting times, cursed ones for sure. This is unprecedented, isn't it, Mark? I, I, I was saying on social media that Theresa May is uh, a bit like Mr. Pink at the end of Reservoir Dogs, I suspect, where she's uh, uh, you know, been hiding in some place of shelter while a uh, Mexican standoff goes bad, yeah. and then she emerges into a room full of fallen bodies to grab the diamonds and run, run out the door. Uh, how, how do you think we can expect Theresa May to govern, having inherited power in this ludicrous and unexpected way. Yeah, well, I think part of the uh, effect of uh, Theresa May coming through in that way as kind of last woman standing is that for somebody who's been around uh, in British politics for actually quite a long time, uh, one of the longest serving Home Secretaries ever, for example, and she's been around in British politics for a long time. But what people know of her politics, her stance is not uh, maybe kind of commensurate with that kind of length of experience. Mm. So she's, it sounds strange to say this, but something of an unknown quantity. As a Home Secretary, uh, she 
is probably associated with a kind of perhaps uh, Thatcherite strong state authoritarian stance on issues like immigration and asylum, for example. One of her kind of uh, major achievements, the deportation of uh, Abu Qatada, when uh, some of the kind of... Uh, uh, more human rights kind of lobby said it wouldn't be uh, a possible or reasonable thing to be doing. Uh, so that might give us some hints. Um, I think people are trying to read what little information you know we've got or get some cues from a couple of things. Her first speech uh, on her appointment as Prime Minister, which was a sort of odd kind of uh, Kinnock-esque uh, industrial yeah. policy. It was a kind of weird swing to the left. I don't know what I was expecting her to say, but it wasn't that. Uh, you know, it sounds yeah. like the kind of thing that you can imagine many members of the Labour Party would be reluctant to say because they think it sounded a bit too lefty. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it, it, it was a real sort of curveball, real surprise. But I think, you know, uh, and I'm not the first person to kind of make this observation, but if you compare what she said, uh, what uh, Theresa May has said uh, on uh, becoming Prime Minister to what that just said, you know, where there is uh, discord, <laughs> may we bring harmony. You and know. a fine job she did of that, I'm yeah, sure, as I'm sure all listeners yeah. would agree. Yeah. So, um, so these aren't always the most representative yeah. uh, samples of people's uh, later realised intentions. Yeah, I think, you know, people are talking about tanks on the lawn and this is a kind of a grab for the centre and all that. But, I mean, I think really we know what British uh, economic uh, policy is going to be about uh, up to 2020. And it's going to be about Brexit. Mm. and dealing with that. So I think the idea that somebody could finally fulfil this historic mission of uh, British politics of coming up with a more developmental uh, economic strategy I think is a a bit kind of uh, uh, far-fetched. I think that speech has been uh, wildly... Mm over-interpreted. Well, because, I mean, it kind of, it seems, uh, it certainly, there's no, there's no mistaking what it seemed, what it was intended to signal, but this is a conservative government with probably one of the most right-wing parliamentary parties that there's, that there's been. They have a majority of 12. She's personally fired a non-trivial portion of that number <laughs> yeah. herself. So, you know, if, if she truly was to attempt to govern in a way that seems so out of step with, with, with their sentiments, then that seems like a pretty tall order, you know, to pass legislation that, that, that did any justice to that. Yeah, that I mean, absolutely. I mean, I suppose that, that kind of leads on to the, the second set of cues that people are looking for, which is a, a cabinet strategy. Mm. So, I mean, I think the, the initial response, the first wave of appointments, you had the, 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 the so-called three Brexiteers, um, all, <laughs> all leavers, um, all uh, appointed to prominent jobs, of course, Boris Johnson, Foreign Secretary, which, as some people have pointed out, sounds like a sort of uh, British uh, sex comedy. Um, <laughs> but um, as those appointments came in, uh, you started to see uh, the sort of Cameroon modernising tendency within the party were being uh, pushed aside. Mm. So you have um, an increase in the number of leavers. Uh, so Cameron had four in his cabinet, uh, May has seven. Um, and generally, uh, the uh, rights of the party, I think, were celebrating um, those cabinet appointments more than the left. So, if, if or as, in as far as the Conservative Party has a left, the uh, moderates, let's say. Mm-hmm. So, is that giving us any clues or cues towards the way that um, Theresa May is going to govern? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, possibly. I mean, maybe her hope is uh, uh, that if she takes some of those right-wing 
types, t pivots them to face outwards, sends them off to do what they seem to like best, which is arguing with Brussels about Britain's sovereignty and prerogatives. That buys her some space to do to do some of her own stuff domestically. I have no idea how plausible is that would she work. Maybe just orients that way. Maybe that's just you know maybe that just follows her orientation politically, and she's and she's strengthening a position both externally and internally. Mm. Yeah, I see what you mean. I mean, that would make sense. But, it, but it's also about the idea that if she wants to do that domestically, <coughs> there are lots of people who probably wouldn't be very cooperative, who would need to be distracted or bought off with something else to, to get that to happen, because these, um, these are not industrial policy type people, mostly, that she's going to be asking to, or insisting vote for anything that looks like that. Well, that, I mean, I think that's an alternative way of, of reading this. Do you want those people... You know, as, as Lyndon Johnson said, do you want them in the tent? Hmm. Uh, you can say What's it. our policy here? Do you want them in, inside the tent pissing outwards or outside the tent pissing in? So is that what this is about? This, uh, you know, people said this, it's a, a, a set of cabinet appointments that seems very conciliatory to the left side, which, of course, May was a Remainer. Mm -hmm. So uh, is that what's going on? Are these people being bound in so that no stab-in-the-back myth can develop? Okay, no um, sell-out myth can develop? Uh, later on, when oh, obviously the the you know um, we might expect that some of the uh, hopes of uh, people who were supporting the Leave side and, and supporting Brexit might not be realised. So, is it a case of binding those people in? You know, when you give Boris Johnson the the role of Foreign Secretary, is that a milk monitor role? Okay, mm. given that there are two cabinet appointments to deal with the uh, kind of major. Uh, issues yeah. of, if there are uh, tanks on anybody's lawn, Brexit. you would think it's probably his. You even have to share his mansion or so. I, so I've gathered. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Again, that's a, a further subplot of that sex comedy that we discussed earlier. Yeah, does, Boris or, Johnson or, shares or, a mansion. Or a sitcom of some kind. Yeah. yeah, three Tory cabinet ministers forced to share an off, uh, a mansion of state. Yeah, with hilarious consequences. <laughs> so um, is that what's going on? That she's binding these people in, um, you know, um, trying to reduce the kind of mayhem that might come uh, when... You have to address things, you know, freedom of movement and all those kind of things that are going to be extremely difficult. So, you know, is that what's going on? I mean, I think there's some case for that, some case for it trying to be conciliate and uh, and and heal. You know, uh, as Machiavelli says, you know, you either crush or conciliate. So the the tendency that's been crushed is definitely that Cameroon, yeah. Notting Hill uh, set uh, kind of tendency, and the the levers are being given some uh, hopes that uh, a Theresa May government, uh, although she was a Remainer, is going to sort of work towards their agenda. I mean, in terms of, the, in the broader sense, what people might expect from Theresa May, you know, rather than, than you know, maybe a, a left-right or issue, a Thatcherite, all, all those kind of things. I think her, um, you know, if you wanted to put an optimistic spin on it, you would say that what she offers is a level of seriousness and a level of kind of, maturity hmm. that has perhaps been missing from right. British politics for a while. Yeah. Um, so I, I think if you wanted to kind of uh, look for uh, something that she brings to British politics, I, I would say that a projection of competence, seriousness, sense of responsibility that maybe uh, some of our other political leaders haven't been uh, projecting hmm. very strongly. You know, there's a tendency in the history of British politics for this very casual cavalier uh, style to uh, dominate. She's I think Theresa May is the opposite of that. She, yeah, she's more of a roundhead, yeah. Yeah. Scott, you were talking about leaving the country not too long ago uh, on, on this podcast. Has Theresa May's ascendancy 
reassured you any about your future? Oh, good Lord, no. I mean, it, I mean that's a great summary from Mark. I guess let me just throw out a few provocative points. Not that I've ever been provocative before. And then, I mean, the first thing is that in some ways, tactically, she's quite tough. And she played a very interesting tactical game within the party. She was quite tactical as Home Secretary. I mean, at times when she felt she needed to curb someone's power, like the police federation, because budgets were getting restricted, she played tough with them. At other times, she played to the gallery, for example, the legal highs, or making legal highs illegal, that bit of puffed-up legislation, which Boom. is no, yeah. You know, here we are, you know, we'll make sure those kids don't run right in your streets, you know, come vote for us. Now, that's fine tactically. Um, what I wonder about is a strategy. And I don't necessarily wonder about this just because I don't see May as having coming up with any kind of strategy in her you know, various departmental post. It's because no matter how good a poker player she is right now, she's got bad cards. I mean, the blunt thing is, is that while everyone was talking about the cabinet appointments, talking about her first speech, is that this is no more than a caretaker government. Because until you have a defined relationship with the EU, you can't have an economic strategy. And until you have an economic strategy, you can't have any type of sensible trade and investment policy. So the most telling thing I saw, and people sort of skated over it, is when Philip Hammond, the new chancellor, a very pragmatist himself, said, you know, forget this deficit reduction stuff. We're yeah. going to have to run a fairly significant deficit, not because we suddenly have decided that austerity is such a terrible thing and we're going to steal labor's clothes, but simply because we're going to have to spend money to prevent the, the, uh, the economy from uh, nosediving. Mm. So from- That's demonstrating in the process that, that those who said that austerity was to some degree a political and circumstantial choice rather than an absolute yeah. necessity were, were completely correct, but the political wind needed to change before it was convenient for them to say that. But to give you the comparison, and then the provocative point I'll throw back out yet, why I get frustrated. I mean, many other countries, Ireland, for example, has run the policy of austerity and now, to an extent, is pulling back on it simply because they're in a better economic position. Portugal, same thing as being attempted by the socialist government there. Um, if the Spanish could get their act together politically, they might be on that path. Here, we're in no sense out of that post-2008, and Cameron's policy was to simply ride that, that and get out of it because of the decision that was made a few weeks ago. Here's the provocative point. Here's where you all, here's where you all drive me crazy. <laughs> I say this to an Australia, an Irishman, and someone from Coventry. So her, as we tape this, uh, she's had her first prime minister's prime minister's mm-hmm. questions, right? Teresa. Yeah, yeah. She, does a, she does a very good Mrs. Thatcher impersonation that, on the there, evidence of it. Yeah. And there you go, there you go. And here I am. You know, I've got all these doubts economically, strategically, what are we going to do? What's the press going crazy about? Oh, she said something very cutting to that Jeremy Corbyn. She put him in his place. Like the British press is like, in its mommy complex, is so in need of basically groveling before a strong woman that everything I've just said matters, doesn't matter at all. That it's like, well, she was very tough, fantastic, and, uh, and mm-hmm. so long. Here's tomorrow morning's headlines. I think if I can just offer a bit of, kind of uh, you know, uh, armchair psychology that I'm not qualified to make. Um, you know, I think there's something about attending boarding school, maybe having... You know, nannies. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's 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 part of this. You know, you could see it when uh, in, in Thatcher's day, and maybe maybe we're back in that territory now. Hmm. 
Cristala, have you got any advice for Britain as it attempts to manage its uh, psychodramas? Go to Ireland en masse. Oh, hang on, you're already doing that. Have they, have they, they run printed, out of applications. Have they printed <laughs> off more applications? Um, there was a question floating around, Mark, about whether she is, how long she is going to kind of govern for and whether she's going to call for an early election. Right. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, there's a couple of things that... Um, would have to be taken into consideration. Now, one is that the way elections are called in Britain has changed um, significantly through the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, so it's not as straightforward as it used to be for a Prime Minister to pick and choose when they want to have an election. So there's two mechanisms by which that can happen. Uh, one is uh, a supermajority of the whole of Parliament uh, uh, resolves to have an early election, um, and the other is um, a vote of no confidence in the government. So either of those options, either likely or uh, desirable, um, or, or at least the point is it's not in the gift necessarily of Theresa May, it's a decision for Parliament. Mm. Uh, and then the second thing, I suppose, is wh- whose interest would it be in at this point to pursue either of those routes? Um, now, uh, obviously Labour comes into that. I don't know if we're going to talk about La- the Labour Party we, in a minute. We, we, we will be on that in one minute, yeah. I promise you. I so am ready to go. They're, they're obviously, I would love to see somebody write this out as a game theory problem <laughs> because there's so many um, permutations of that decision, whether you pursue that. I mean, you can have a, you know, this is all new stuff for, for British policy. You could have a dummy vote of no confidence. Mm. Okay, you could, you could whip your uh, MPs to say, oh, this is a vote of no confidence get it because you have a majority and then you say well it's not really a vote of no confidence it's just a a mechanism for getting an early election again classic british politics we're going to have a fixed term parliament act but we're not going to think it through Mm -hmm. um and think about how this will be implemented and how many holes it has in it so whether it will go there i think is a very complicated you know uh process do you want to call it early if you're the conservatives and uh you know uh how does this affect the Corbyn situation and, and, and many things to think about? My feeling, uh, well, no, I'm not going to tell you my feeling. I don't do prediction. Social Go scientists. on, this, is the, pl- this so, is the place for forecasting. And I don't think there will be an early election. I will mm. say that, yeah. Okay, it would be, it would be wrong for us uh, not to take some time to talk about the Labour Party in, in, in this section. Uh, I, I refuse to admit it anyway, because if there is an election, of course, you know, the theory is that the alternative government in uh, contention ought to be coming from, from there. Um, but they are in... I mean, disarray doesn't even do no. justice to, to, to the sheer morbid, catastrophic horror of, of what's going on right there. So let me, let me just put on the table, first of all, on Jeremy Corbyn, I sympathise with a lot of his policy vision such as it is, running against the people he ran against last time who looked like born losers mm. anyway and who also wanted to mortgage their principles in the process of probably not winning. I can totally see why people went, went with Corbyn. And, you know, in terms of moving the discourse within, like, where Labour will, if he leaves office now, Labour will end up some way to the left of where it would have ended up if he hadn't been in that job, I mm-hmm. suspect. 
So he has achieved something quite significant in getting to that point. But it is now abundantly clear, in my view, setting aside any consideration of what the content of his policies may or may not be, that he just does not have the skill set to do the job that he's in. And that's probably not surprising because it was kind of Buggins' turn that he was the left faction's candidate this time. If it had occurred to them they might win, it probably wouldn't have been him out of even the handful of candidates they could have chosen. But, you know, he... Uh, he can't perform particularly well in Parliament or on TV, the two contexts where you most need him to do that. He can't seem to manage people uh, or to manage the party operationally. And this EU campaign uh, it was just the latest you know, in, in instalment of that. And most grievously of all, I think, but, you know, his biggest, deepest, most fundamental problem is that having spent 30 years voting any way he liked on any issue he liked without the slightest regard for for the party whip or party loyalty. There is no one in the whole of Parliament who is less well-placed to attempt to demand loyalty and discipline from anybody else, because why should, they, why should anyone vote for anything they don't believe in uh, because he asked them to when he never yeah. did the same thing for anyone? So, you know, I've, uh, and, uh, so, so I think, in my view, he just absolutely has to go, and any sensible person in his position would have decided to leverage his, their position to get someone you know, favourable to themselves on the ballot paper instead of himself. But uh, but he's decided to, to try and hold on to the job in spite of the fact that he would be sent back to run a parliamentary party, none of whom want him, and then would have to fight a campaign on the basis of that. Um, so I think he has to go. We now have one candidate, thankfully, Owen Smith, mm-hmm. who I, yeah. I quite like the cut of his jib, don't know much about him. Most people don't really, but he seems to be able to do, you know, once one foot in front of the other competence <coughs> seems to be the bar that we're, that we're now setting for political leadership, and he seems to be passing those tests in an early sign. I feel a little bit bad, as do many people for Angela Eagle, that she was the one who stuck her head o- over the parapet, uh, got bricks through her window, uh, and then was forced out of the leadership contest by someone who wasn't in it. But you know, uh, sanity suggests that even those who are in the deepest sense sympathetic to the anti-austerity move, move Labour to the left agenda have to say it is better for Jeremy Corbyn to move on. And Owen Smith would seem to be a pretty acceptable face uh, for, 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 you know, the kind of re- rebirth of the soft left of the Labour Party in a way that wouldn't have been possible last time round. Does anybody want to either defend Jeremy Corbyn in any way in his efforts to stay in this job at this point? Okay, as devil's advocate, uh, I think you, your uh, sense of whether he has done or m- might fulfil some useful role depends on what you think the objective is. So Corbyn is uh, a kind of old uh, Benite, uh, and that fraction of the Labour Party... The Labour Party is, of course, a coalition, always has been. Uh, that fraction of the party is uh, committed to uh, treating the Parliamentary Labour Party as a, a section, a subsection of a wider social movement, a wider Labour movement. Now, if you think that uh, Corbyn, in bringing in uh, you know, uh, so wider social movements, people who had perhaps given up on the Labour Party... Uh, uh, you know, founding this momentum uh, as exactly the kind of social movement that Tony Benn and all those kind of people wanted. If you think the, you know, your historic mission is to democratise Labour Party structures and connect the Parliamentary Party or even to make the Parliamentary Party more the servant of the membership than the master, then you could say that Corbyn's probably done more on that 
than anybody else, including Tony Benn. Mm. So as devil's advocate, if that's the way you wanted to uh, define success, okay, uh, you could say he has achieved something in that direction. Now, the problem for him is that most people don't define success in that way. Most people define success as actually achieving some measure right. of governmental power. That's coming closer to winning an election from which point you can then pass legislation. Exactly. That, that was, and he's, and he's gotten so far away from that possibility right now that, I mean, it is literally inconceivable that he could ever be elected prime minister, and he doesn't seem to see that as a problem. Yeah, I mean, what, an interesting poll that was out in the week, I don't know if people saw this, on um, the unions are still quite supportive of Corbyn. Um, you know, which the unions traditionally, you know, not necessarily from that Benite fraction of the party, um, more kind of, you know, a, a strictly speaking, laborist, uh, trade unionist kind of agenda that Corbyn is not really uh, uh, part of, or that's not his absolute home within the Labour Party. But uh, amongst the unions, all the major unions, GMB, Unite, Unison, uh, were all polled on whether they thought Jeremy Corbyn could win or whether Jeremy Corbyn could become Prime Minister. And in no case did they rate his chances... OK, or in no case did more than 30% of respondents think that he could. Mm. Okay, So why are they still supporting him? They think it's about something other than winning. Yeah. Okay. Now, the, the British system doesn't give you a lot if you haven't won. Okay, You look at uh, what Theresa May is able to do now, Okay, uh, that she's in uh, the position she's in, Okay, you can start talking about having a developmental industrial strategy, or in, let's call it what it is, you know, industrial policy. Okay, something that's been off the table for years. Uh, you can uh, appoint who you like. Uh, you can uh, pivot this way, that way. You can abandon the economic strategy that's supposedly necessary uh, for the last six years. You know, the austerity target is gone. Uh, the austerity agenda is gone. You can do all of that if you're in government. Now, I think the big, criti- uh, the, well, there are many criticisms of Corbyn, which, you know, you've outlined some of them, but is the idea that you can change British politics and you can change the Labour Party. I mean, I think you can change the agenda in politics, but in British politics, it's extremely difficult to do that when you're not in government. Mm. OK, there are, you know, numerous examples of uh, the political agenda being shifted quite significantly, even radically, in the history of British politics, but it's it's only from government. You can only do it as as you know if you're in the hot seat. And th- I think that's the mistake. Okay, the critics of Corbyn would point to is that your strategy fundamentally misunderstands what's on offer for uh, a political party that's not interested in or uh, is not focused enough. They would say on actually on government. Okay, it's now time for our number of the week round, where we pin a number on a story and tell you a little bit more about it. Mark, as our uh, esteemed guest, you're first in the batting order. Give us a number, give us some context for it. Okay, so my number of the week is four. Uh, And this is the number of privately educated members of Theresa May's new cabinet, uh, which has 22 members. So uh, it's not something I've seen that widely reported on, uh, but... There's a case for saying this is the least posh Conservative cabinet ever. Um, we've got 18 state-educated uh, members, uh, 86% of the cabinet state-educated. How does that compare with David Cameron? 
Uh, Cameron had... Uh, they all went to the same school, didn't they? Never yeah, mind, well, uh, I never mean, mind look, all the private education. Let's spell it out, though. Why spell it out? Why does that matter? Oh, no. Okay. You see, this is the question I didn't want. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, all year I've been trying to explain to our uh, students who are from countries other than uh, the United Kingdom how the British school system works. I suppose um, why it matters, it's a kind of... Uh, yeah imperfect but it's a kind of proxy for class it's a kind of proxy for privilege uh it is um uh you know especially if you look at cameron uh cameron and some of the people closest to him uh in politics uh seem to be a resurgence mm. of the sort of old Etonian public school boy uh you know the infamous bullingdon club mm. involvement uh, in, in in the cameron cabinet is a proxy for class and privilege right. Some might say. right well <laughs> you know you look at my strategy then um uh i i, I don't imagine this is intentional but it's uh, a a real backlash against that bullingdon tendency so maybe and again you know i'm trying quite hard to be optimistic here um what we're seeing here the composition of the new cabinet, this is what a meritocratic conservative cabinet looks like. Your optimism does you credit, Mark. <laughs> Do my much. best. Do my best. <laughs> okay, Cristale. Yes. You the number. My number is seven. Seven is the difference between 76 and 69. Now, um, those of you who know me... I'm breaking out a pen and paper here. I know. Well, it took me a while. I had to look at this. I had to look at 76 and 69 and then count on my fingers to make sure I did get it right, right? The difference is seven. So those of you who know me uh, know that I am a multi-country individual. And uh, one of my countries, as you may have heard a couple of weeks ago, had an election. So this, there was an Australian leadership election, parliamentary election, and it took roughly two weeks for us to figure out what was going on in Australia and whether we would have a new government or the same government or some variation. The Liberal National Coalition... The Illiberal Liberal Party. As you like to call them, named and traded here, the Illiberal Liberal Party in Adam's terms, um, has won enough seats... 76 to form a majority government so we have a continuation oh, of thinking. the same yep in australia uh the national the, the labor party won 69 seats up by three point something percent um so on my end there's general doom except you the the guy you guys like uh nick xenophon I like his name, to be fair. I, 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 don't know, I don't know that I approve of him in general. Well, he won a seat, so you, so you might be hearing more from Nick Xenophon in our number of the week uh, in future. Greens won a seat. Um, Pauline Hanson, arch kind of radical right-wing demagogue. Um, She's still around. Yes, yeah, she made a resurgence. resurgence. She won a seat as well. Um, so... My number of the week uh, is seven, with 90% of the votes counted in Australia. We don't do things fast. Um, Can't watch these things. No, got to be recounted and recounted. Um, general depression on my part. Okay. Scott, you are positively straining with anticipation of your own number. Well, so many choices, but the one that I've settled on is 300. Spartans. I wish <laughs> it was Spartans. Not quite Spartans. You'll find out who they are in just a second. 
and it comes from a black comedy moment on our Paragon of Virtue, BBC Radio 4's Today program mm-hmm. last week when the presenter was interviewing a Canadian official. And the BBC, sort of like Mark, trying to find some optimism out of the mess that we were in. Had Mr. Got, Bean level mess. Yes, that's right. Mr. Bean level mess, not apocalyptic mess. The BBC had gone to this Canadian official and said, well, yeah, you know, we no longer, UK will no longer be trading with the EU. But of course, we could have trade deals with Canada, of course, and, and the US, and maybe Swaziland, and <laughs> Togo could be looking for this. So many trade deals. And so little time. So little time. And the Canadian official was being very diplomatic, as Canadians can be, and say, well, yes, we do like trading with the UK as a member of the EU, and that's still in place. And the BBC person is trying to chew your like, yes, 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 but we're leaving the EU. So we'd like to trade with you, trade with you. So tell us all about it, how wonderful this is going to be. And the Canadian person was explaining, as an example, about the Canadian-European trade agreement, CETA. Again, how Canada had reached this detailed agreement with the EU, even more ambitious than the North American Free Trade Agreement with the U.S. And, of course, the U.K., still part of the EU, part of this agreement, wonderfully. And the BBC person getting a bit frustrated said, yes, 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 yes. But what does that mean? And she said, well, it was quite a complicated process. We needed, and the BBC person said, how many trade negotiators? And she said, well, 300. Now, dear listener, since the UK government, the entire UK government has only 15 to 20 trade negotiators. This apparently unsettled the BBC presenter who gave a rather unspoken oh, damn, we're screwed. (laughs) So my number of the week is that cold moment of reality, which is not Spartans, but when you need guys who really enjoy negotiating trade deals, which means that the reality is far from having these deals on offer tomorrow. Dear listener, the UK government apparently is sending out letters this week throughout the private sector, and indeed, I believe, to certain universities say, can we second some of your people, please, to help us negotiate all these trade deals? Which is, I guess, if one wants a silver lining in this Mr. Bean not apocalyptic moment, means we are defeating austerity by offering increased employment in the public sector to get the trade deals that we need to save the economy because we decided to put a gun to our head and leave the European Union. It's a rare crisis that doesn't benefit the lawyers. Um, that, that's for sure. I guess anyone with a British passport who works in the EU's trade negotiation department is likely to be getting a phone call at some point pretty soon about the possibilities of repatriation. Except they'll probably want to be paid in euros or dollars rather than pounds sterling. Yeah, and bite the currency that they receive it cartoon-style to test it. Uh, I am going to uh, perform a familiar rhetorical trick by saying that my number of the week is zero. That number uh, is the number of criminal charges that have ever been filed against one Hillary Clinton, Mm -hmm. who is the democratic presumptive nominee uh, for president and will be ratified as such. uh, Crooked Hillary. Crooked Hillary Clinton in the parlance of uh, uh, her opponent, Donald Trump. She's going to be getting her nomination for the Democratic Republican, the Democratic National Convention uh, coming up uh, in a couple of weeks, I think. They follow pretty fast on each other these days. Um, However, in the 
cavalcade of uh, shouting nastiness uh, and poisonous uh, ethno-nationalists insanity that is the Republican Party convention that has just nominated uh, Donald Trump formally to run against her as their uh, nominee. Uh, things have degenerated on pretty much every front, but one of the uh, one among several dips in the decorum uh, was yesterday when Chris Christie, governor of New Jersey, uh, and somewhat unexpected and uh, possibly occasionally somewhat remorse-filled endorser of Donald Trump, gave his speech. Some would call it an audition, an audition as well to be the attorney general uh, under any Trump administration. The signature uh, of which was whipping the crowd up to repeatedly shout and chant, and I would go so far as to say, Bay, lock her up uh, with regard to Hillary Clinton, because with the encouragement of their supposedly responsible political leaders, uh, a major theme with the delegates at that, at that convention has become the idea that Hillary Clinton is a criminal, uh, somewhere between uh, a committer of treason uh, and indirectly murder uh, of various U.S. citizens in Benghazi, also uh, a, a serial liar and breaker of government protocol with regard to her email server. Presumably the conspiracy web goes far wider, stretching back into the 1990s. But the basic idea is that the Republican Party as a baying, crowded whole, uh, and led by someone who is encouraging, not discouraging this, is making a theme of the idea that the opponent against whom they are running in the presidential election should be literally sent to prison uh, using whatever tools are at the disposal of an elected Republican administration. I do not think I am alone, and many writers this morning uh, have made me feel comfortable that I am not alone in thinking that this is not a sign of a democratic society in rude health. As a general rule, jailing or threatening to jail your opponents in elections while you're running uh, is a sign of uh, a degrading uh, discourse and indeed a, a possibly rather fragile and perilously close to the age democracy. So God willing, they will not win and all of this will become simply a dark fever dream that we remember in the fullness of, uh, in the fullness of time over drinks. But it is, uh, it, yeah, it, it, it is, it is installment number 9,352 uh, in, uh, in, in this year's uh, dark foreshadowings of American, uh, American democracy's collapse should it be realised. On July 15th, a subgroup of Turkey's military deployed troops to strategic locations in major cities and planes and helicopters to the sky in what it soon became clear was an attempt at a military coup displacing President Recep Tayyip Erdogan from power. They also seized control of state media and declared the armed forces has seized control in order to, quote, reinstate constitutional order, human rights and freedom. Turkey has a long history of military coups during the 20th century and the rise of Erdogan's AK party, which supports the increasing role of Islam in politics, has long been in tension with the military's self-appointed role as the guardian of secularism in the country. The coup, however, did not go as its originators planned, and by Saturday morning the government's grip had been firmly re-established and thousands of soldiers and others suspected of involvement in planning the coup had been detained by state security forces. It soon became clear that Erdogan, who had been accused of creeping authoritarianism long before last week, intended to respond to events by 
launching a sweeping crackdown against his domestic enemies. Thousands have been fired or suspended from their posts in the military, police, judiciary, education and other public institutions. Many were associated with the so-called Gulenist movement led by Fatullah Gulen, a former political ally now in exile in the United States, accused by the president of seditious activity for some time. Many, however, suspect Erdogan of taking advantage of the coup to establish his total domination of all politics in the country, not merely to punish those directly responsible. The more conspiratorially minded, and I've certainly heard them, uh, even suggested that the post-coup political environment was likely to prove so advantageous to Erdogan that he might well be responsible for staging the coup itself as a pretext for consolidating his authority. So, Kristala, uh, we've been no... Uh, rah-rah fan club for President Erdogan over the years uh, but it seems like in the course of these events he, he's effectively run the table and won big um, he's clearly going to be the big winner from all this in terms of power um, once it all shakes out has he just gotten lucky in his enemies here who have apparently completely screwed this up uh, or were the plotters of this coup useful idiots uh, how, how do you read it um I guess I have a few things to to say about this, and the first one is is this question of whether it was a whether it was a staged coup or not. Um, and in some ways, I want to I want to start by saying that's that's irrelevant at this point because of the response to to the coup. So things have moved so so fast since then that the the backlash is um, not unexpected and also um, extremely severe. And I guess no one would accuse Erdogan of being um, an underreactor. <laughs> but uh, a friend of mine noted on Saturday morning uh, that this is Turkey's first prime time coup. And that is to say that people in Turkey have a long experience of military coups and can say pretty comprehensively that they happen generally at about five o'clock in the morning when everyone is asleep, not at 11 o'clock on a Friday night in summer when everyone is out on the streets or finishing their uh, primetime serial on TV and just about to switch over to the news channel, right? So... Things were a little bit unusual on Friday night in terms of the coup and not just in terms of the way that the coup was played. The faces of the leaders were absent. It was um, it was very, very strange. Erdogan, who historically uh, dislikes social media and who is famous for blocking social media, used FaceTime to call into the television station to announce that he was okay. Um and call his supporters to go out onto the streets and um, protect or fight for the for the Turkish state, for Turkish democracy, which caused absolute chaos, absolute chaos in, in, in Turkey. Um, and he subsequently blocked Facebook and Twitter. Um, so the WhatsApp coup and whether or not it is a coup... Um, is is a question that I don't think is going to be answered or answerable anytime soon. And and as I said, I'm not sure that it really matters at this point. You you mentioned thousands of people who have been um, suspended or fired. It's actually around 25,000 people so far. Um, and so, regardless, kind of the the cause, the the focus isn't what 
whether or not it was real and how opportunistic it is, it's that this person who and this government that's been for the last five or so years kind of fermenting this deep division in Turkey and this increasing tension has really just amped that up all the way now. So what is happening in Turkey is that tension is just, I mean, you see it, it's at a peak. People are very scared on both sides. Uh, there is so much violence out on the streets. It's it's the divisions are really really dangerous and Scott I'm sure will talk to us about the regional implications of that um but this person who was maybe it would be generous to say teetering on the brink of authoritarianism has just tipped straight over um and this thing about the Gulenist conspiracy, I mean, he's been going after Gulen for a long, long time, and you can't tell me that 25,000 people are affiliated uh, with, with him. So it is absolutely an opportunity. He has taken absolutely the opportunity to do a total clean-up of any possible opposition, um, including what, what, has he, what has he gotten rid of? 2,800 judges. Mm-hmm. Um, and... So people are calling this um, Kabadayu democracy. And Kabadayu is kind of a strongman or protector who veers into bullying. Like a Kadio? Yes. So so this in this kind of shape of Kabadayu democracy, um, things are progressing daily. The US we see is, uh, is talking about um, the possibility talking gently, I guess, about the possibility of um, suspending Turkey from NATO. Uh, Things in Turkey are extremely divided. Turkey's neighbours are very, very nervous. So things are are pretty, pretty dire. And if we're talking about Mr Bean uh, level of of democracy, this one is closer to the apocalyptic, I would say. Yeah. I mean, mean, whether or not we think it's some full-on Reichstag fire-style engineered uh, affair to produce a response. Uh, No evidence of that at the moment. It would would be irresponsible to say that one knows. What we certainly can say is that he very clearly had a long enemies list that was simply sitting ready to be operationalized. He was purge ready. And then circumstances have happened to present. And for those who participated, whether as dupes or as uh, uh, people who had a real shot in this coup, it it just, you know, to to quote The Wire, you know, you come at the king, you best not miss. Um, This was clearly a one-time deal that they had. And not only they, but anyone who he regards as in any way diluting, let alone challenging yeah. his, his authoritarian control of the country, is now going to be lucky if they stay out of prison. You, I mean, I feel sorry, especially for the soldiers on the street who thought that they were um, um, reacting to a terrorist threat. Uh, so there was, I mean, there was a level of confusion at all, at, at all kind of um, official levels that, that petered down. Um, that had really, really brutal consequences. Mm. Some of them just looked like kids, really. They, no, one, many one, of them were kids. Once they had kids, their, uh, their helmets off kids. and their guns taken away from them, there were scenes of them being beaten uh, manhandled and yeah. beaten in the streets yeah. by, by, I guess, the whatever the, 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 the Erdogan version of phalangists is who came yeah. out into the streets. 
Well, I think Erdogan has done a really good job of whipping people into this kind of nationalist frenzy. And you saw people out, out in the streets with the Turkish flag hung around their necks. And they're, I mean, for an outsider, they're, they're very, very confronting images. And, and uh, a wise friend of mine, a Turkish friend at the time, was saying, until Monday, or Monday today is Wednesday, um, I had to do that as a check. Monday or Tuesday was saying, let's stay calm. You know, the, the, biggest, the biggest danger we have here is increasing the division among us, which increases the violence. But we are just sitting back and watching the results of this, and they're just changing by the hour. Mm. Scott? Uh, changing by the hour, indeed. As we record, the number is now 50,000 mm. of people who've been dismissed, including 15,000 staff from the education ministry mm. and, like, uh, yeah, like and teachers and various other troubling orders like uh, all academics uh, and various other kinds of civil servant have been told they can't leave the country yeah. uh, for yeah. the foreseeable future yeah. which you know that's never that's, that's never a good sign no it's i mean what let's i guess let's walk it back just a bit to set up a couple of, at least for me essential background points and then get to the significance, which you all quite clearly identified, that this is part of an ongoing process which has started before the coup of a move to authoritarian rule. First is, uh, you know, this, this coup came close to succeeding. Or at least I, th- you know, when I went to bed Friday night to get a few hours sleep, I thought he was done for when he was on FaceTime because I didn't think the appeal was going to work. Um, you know, they, the military had taken over state TV. They had the Air Force, almost the entire Air Force, flipped. It was involved in the coup against him. Mm. And it was a question of flipping the rest of the army uh, who were fighting the police at mm. that street. If they had had full control of the armed forces, then that, it seems likely that, they would have, it would have and, been possible. And in retrospect, you know, I'm not that I'm going to advise the coup plotters, but I think if the mistake was they didn't, have a, they didn't have a face behind the statement that state TV had to read out over and over again. Mm. If they put a face out there, someone, you can follow this guy, which basically would make the army make a choice. And so then I think it possibly succeeds as Erdogan's trying to make his way back yeah. from when he was on vacation in the southwest back into Istanbul. Uh, the second point I'd make just is that um, it is a different type of dynamic that we, when you see a leader having to use the social media that he had tried to block and go on to FaceTime before he can arrange the ad hoc press conference at the airport in Istanbul, we're in different times in the way that you organize and whip up the public. And I think that second point is key. A lot of people in Turkey preferred Erdogan to stay in power than preferred yeah. the military to come in. That has a lot to do with Turkish history and fear of reactions to military coups, the idea that the military should not be in politics. So in some ways, this is a more complex picture than just simply Erdogan or not Erdogan. Mm. But that said, what we are left with is is a person who is increasingly not only going for a one-party state, AKP, his party, but a one-person state. The state is him. Having gotten rid of his longtime prime minister last year, as a reminder, Amadevatolu, uh, having tried to push aside the opposition parties after November's win in the parliamentary elections. What does it mean? Um, I, I can go over the regional matters for you, and I think they are they will be significant. Um, the... Turkey now, Erdogan at least, having this face-off with the U.S., cutting off the power to uh, the main airbase, Interlake Airbase, which is a Turkish airbase, but the Americans use it for their operations against the Islamic State and have used it since the 50s uh, against foes such as the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. saying, 
the implied thing is you give us Gulen, the cleric, and we put the power back on. That's a pretty big game of chicken to be playing. Um, I could talk to you a little bit about the effects on the Middle East, especially the Syrian conflict where Turkey has been seriously involved in supporting the, uh, the opposition rebellion. But just put it in a quick nutshell and to get to where I want to challenge you in terms of what happens next. I, I think the upshot of this is that Turkey, um, in a way, retreats, pulls back. Um, I think there is no chance that Turkey will be in the EU. I don't think there was anyway before this for various reasons. But, there's no but chance. What, what, what pretense there was still use, utility in maintaining about its possibility is now... It's now gone, which, yeah. which is why when the Turkish, you know, when the prime minister uh, could come out on Saturday, so oh, we're going to bring the death penalty back in, mm. which walks back the agreement with mm-hmm. the Europeans, uh, which was sort of one of the checkpoints on the way to membership. We know where that stands. I think relations with the U.S. are going to be strained, to say the least. The Americans are not going to extradite Gulen. There's not enough evidence to extradite him. They're not going to. Your call, Mr. Erdogan, on how far you boost this. That leaves Turkey, I think, with some interesting decisions. Um, They had tried, just before this coup took place, to restore relations with Israel. They had tried to repair relations with Russia after a very tense time uh, with Syria as a catalyst. Uh, Iran has basically said to Erdogan, we support you, mate. Come on, trade with us. Now, does Turkey actually, is that their gamble in terms of the regional policy. And I say that to take it back to the internal, because I think mm-hmm. while agreeing with you that Erdogan is the short-term winner, uh, not because he planned it this way, but because he's taking advantage of it, I'm not quite sure about the medium term. And that is, uh, this is a country which, while having economic growth for several years under Erdogan, has had economic issues in the last couple of years. If this if country faces political and economic isolation, i See that boating, that's not good for anyone in Turkey. Uh, that will lead eventually to more pressure on Erdogan and on the system because if you have the economic downturn, does he bolt towards Moscow even more? Mm. So I, I think he survived this crisis. He's been masterful at handling the short term, ruthless at handling the short term, ironically like President Putin has been. Um, mm. But how? what does he do after surviving the near future. Mm. I mean, there's the reference there to the United States, uh, and I guess we could group with the United States a variety of other Western liberal powers, I suppose, had a bit of a tricky few hours in, mm. in, in deciding what to do here, because obviously there are many reasons to have reservations about Erdogan. On the other hand, explicitly endorsing military coups is not something that uh, at this point is considered normatively acceptable within within, within U.S. policy or, or elsewhere. So they... They had this choice to make, and they made it the only way they really could, which was to say that they supported the democratically elected government and they wanted, you know, uh, the minimum possible amount of uh, death to result while while returning to that to that starting point. But what it what it does underline is something that's been coming up within a handful of issues for us over the course of the last while, which is that you know democracy is a fine idea, but democracy and support for it do not address the totality of our of the kind of challenges that, that we face. Um, because, because the problem is, as we are having to confront, it feels like on a, on, on a daily basis touring the world issue by issue, that you can be, people can be elected and popular, and they can be highly illiberal 
and they can be well on the road to themselves dismantling uh, the very democracy that is at the same time the source of their mandate. And we don't, we haven't really worked out what our intellectual and political response to that is. Um, you know, in our ideal world, we would like to think that, you know, you just have another election and then, you know, once it's become clear that someone has creeping authoritarian tendencies and we put all the issues on the table and the population realizes that, you know, this road is a dark one and at the very least applies sufficient electoral punishment to cause someone to course correct. But we, in many cases, are not seeing that. We're seeing situations where... um, you know, either highly illiberal people are receiving uh, full-throated endorsements from their electorates uh, or then uh, the forces of total anti-democracy and the overthrow of such governments are supported by non-trivial portions of the population. You can have 30 35% of, of a country saying, coup, please, uh, tomorrow, because, uh, because we don't want to be governed by the other 65 um, you know, and I suppose it just it it it, it brings us back to just uh, uh, to, to to dwell on it for a moment. Just the sheer insanity and naivety that prevailed in American foreign policy circa 2005, when George Bush was delivering a second inaugural address, premised on the idea that the alchemical ingredient to resolve the international security challenges of the Middle East and indeed the world was the democratization of all of its countries. Because we have, you know, if we didn't know it already, what's been laid bare is that, you know, democracy is one among many values and no sort of solution in itself uh, to instability and conflict, either domestic or or international. Yeah, people are scared. I mean, I I think if we walk it back, we've talked about everyone on several occasions, but I think people were scared last November and went to the AKP because he said, the Islamic State is bombing you, we're fighting the Kurds, and by the way, there's going to be a world of pain on the Kurds. There has been in recent mm. months, and you talk about entire cities uh, that have been blockaded, that mm-hmm. have been leveled by the Turkish military, but Erdogan could portray enemy, 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 including Gulen, and pull it off as an electoral trick. Now, how many other countries can that be done and that you can just say enemy and enemy? It has happened in the U.S., by the way. Hmm. Um, and what does that say, in fact, about any hope in terms of a conflict resolution or something that gets beyond raising that culture of fear as the way to stay in power? I wish I could find something cheerful to say today, but no, I can't. No, I have nothing. I have nothing either. I think this is not going to end well, um, and I think this is not going to end well for Erdogan. Um, especially in the medium term. Um, I would like to be optimistic and and say, yes, Adam, um, democracy is one among many values that we cultivate um, as kind of cosmopolitan or quasi-cosmopolitan societies. Um, Let's perhaps cultivate some of those other qualities um, to stop orienting globally towards fear, but it feels like we're in such a downward spiral and people are just so deeply divided on so many issues that, I don't know, I despair.
on, wow. a, on a Wednesday afternoon, yes, at four, whatever it is. Well, when you despair, I think that tips the whole of the <laughs> panel into, in, into vortex. There goes, there goes sunny optimism. Well, I think we've set the world to rights, or at least told it it should despair. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter, at Paul Worldview, and please do. You can subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes and leave us a rating or a comment, which helps others discover the pod. Um, and you can also come and like our show page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash poll worldview, where you can get links to the show and articles that we talk about sometimes, etc., etc. But if you like the show, please uh, share one version or other of it on, on social media as well, because that's, uh, that's how people often find out about things that are awesome that they don't know about. Our participants today have been uh, the usual crew. Uh, Scott, where can people find you if they want to track you down on social media? Scott Lucas underscore EA on Twitter or at Political Worldview's partner, the news and analysis website EA Worldview at eaworldview.com. Stella. Yes. Where can they track you down? They can find me. Their bounty hunters are seeking to find (laughs) you for uh, social media purposes. On Twitter at uh, at Yakinthu, Y-A-K-I-N-T-H-O-U. Our guest Mark Goodwin has left the studio, but if you Google that name, you will find his profile page on the website. Uh, I'm Adam Quinn. Uh, that's Adam Quinn 161 on Facebook. If you want to follow me where I post prolifically, some would say excessively. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter, which I lo- use far less often, uh, at Adam James Quinn. Our producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us uh, from the baking oven that is the third floor of the Muirhead Tower at the Political Science International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England. We'll be back soon. We very much hope you will be too. Bye. Bye. Bye.